0: Welcome back to the Governance Podcast at the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. My name is Sean hargreaves heap Professor of Political Economy at King's. Today I'm really pleased to welcome Herb Gintis, Professor of Economics at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. Professor Gintis is known for his theoretical contributions to sociobiology, especially altruism, evolutionary game theory, gene culture co-evolution, and human capital theory. Throughout his career, he has worked extensively with the economist Sam Bowles. Their landmark book, Schooling in Capitalist America, has had multiple editions in five languages since it was first published in 1976. Their most recent book, A Cooperative Species, Human Reciprocity and its Evolution, was published by Princeton University Press in 2011, and Herb's most recent book is Individuality and Entanglement, the Moral and Material Basis of Social Life. Herb, thanks so much for joining us as the Governance Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, what I thought I'd like to do is sort of um, go through your work uh, in reverse chronological order, starting with um, capitalist schooling in America. But before I do that, I thought it might be useful to sort of provide a little bit of a biographical backdrop. And so I wonder if perhaps you could tell us, you know, where did you grow up in the states? How did you get into
1: economics? (laughs) How did you get into academia? well, I, I grew up in Philadelphia. <clears throat> my parents were, uh, my father was an entrepreneur. He had a furniture store. I was the th- They were all immigrants or second generation mm-hmm. and first generation Americans. And I was the first one in my family who ever went to college. But um, I was encouraged to do that. And from a very early age, I remember being interested in science and math. And I was just basically incredibly curious about this universe all around us. So in Philadelphia, we had the Franklin Institute, and um, I would go down there on Saturday. I'd take the subway all the way down, and I'd go into the library, and I'd get books out. And I had books. I had no idea what they meant, but I took them home, and I tried to read them. Yeah, yeah. And um, so that was what happened, and I was naturally drawn toward not just science, but also Uh, The humanities, I love philosophy. I I knew French and Spanish, and I studied in them in college. Um, But I went to graduate school in math. In math? In mathematics, yes. Um, And at Harvard, which is a very competitive school for for mathematics. And I did fine there, but I got interested in the movements going on around me. I was part of the SDS radical... Um, yeah. anti-war group, yeah. and yeah. I went down south, you know, for civil rights, and we were part of the feminist you know, gender equality. Yeah, And I I kind of thought that math was very abstract, and I wanted to do something meaningful. So I talked to a friend of mine who, who was going to um, MIT in uh, economics, and he said, well, Herb, you should study economics because we're all Marxists. And of course, Mark said, the economy determines everything. So he, and I said, well, what is economics? So uh, he said, well, you know, it's about how people produce and how people get exploited. I said, well, it sounds good. And at the time, I was in the math department, but I had, from, to make a living, I was running a sandal shop in Central Square in Cambridge. I'm sorry, in Harvard Square in Cambridge. And I was a good hippie. You know, I made sandals and handbags and all that kind of stuff. And one afternoon, I just said, well, I'm going to close the shop, and I'll go see about economics. So I walked to Tower Library, which was about a 10-minute walk from the center of Harvard Square. And it was the middle of the summer, and uh, nobody was around. I found one guy in his office. His name was James Dusenberry, oh, yeah. who turned Duesenbury. out to be a very famous yeah. Yeah. economist. And I said, I want to study economics. And he said, well, what background do you have? I said, I'm a mathematician. He said, you're in. (laughs) And he gave me some books to read, including Keynes General Theory, which I understood about no words of. Um, And I started to do economics. So that's how it happened that I got into economics.
0: Essentially, I'm going to come back to macroeconomics because it's a very interesting sort of gap in, in, in your work is uh, you don't write much about macroeconomics or Keynes. Or so it's 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 uh, I want to come back to that. But before before I do that, you mentioned uh, your political engagement there with the SDS and, and, and uh, uh, civil rights movement. And I wonder, I mean, have you maintained that political engagement throughout your life or Has it been a sort of different kind of political engagement that you've
1: had? Uh, I have maintained that political engagement all my life. I have stopped being a Marxist. I think Marxism is very undemocratic and it's wrong. It's not a good social theory. Uh, So I've given that up completely. And I'm much more close now to John Stuart Mill um, as a good liberal Democrat. And the big thing that happened to me, where I changed, was when Amnesty International came about. I was teaching in France, and I had this friend whose wife was working for Amnesty International. I said, what's that? She said, we're working on freedom for everybody. I said, that sounds fantastic. And at the time, I thought, what is this Marxism with the working class, you know? Everyone I've dealt with are, you know, minorities that are oppressed and gender inequality and uh, war and... What is all this Marxism? And then from economics, I'm not going to go into any theoretical stuff about economics. Marxian economics is just very, very, very primitive compared to traditional economics that I was learning as a graduate student. So I said, Sam Bowles and I said, you know, we're we're going to show how you can do political economy of freedom. Right. And we wrote a book called – our first book was called um, Schooling in Capitalist Mm -hmm. America, which was – we espoused what's called the the, uh, democratic firm. That is, workers should own their own firms, and um, the economy should be a market economy, but uh, the ownership should stand with the workers. Mm -hmm. Um, And unfortunately, we found that you couldn't work that for technical reasons, mostly having to do with capital theory, that is, who owns what. There's a reason that the rich hire the poor. And you're never going to... It doesn't work to have it in the reverse direction. So we were disillusioned with that, but we were very happy with all of the political side of what we were doing about the importance of... We wrote this. We said something like this. Marx was right that all of history is the history of struggle. But the struggle is the struggle for freedom and democracy. Yeah. And so we wrote a book called Democracy and Capitalism in 1985, and that was our swan song for Marxism. Yeah. And uh, so we, I still think if you look around the world, people are struggling for freedom all over the place, and we yeah. have to support that. Yeah. But they're not struggling for, you know, the workers owning the means of production or anything like that that's
0: right of course i mean marx and mill are the, are the two great tiring figures of the 19th century that sort of animate most of the debate in the, the 20th century in many uh, respects maybe. and mm-hmm. but i was i was wondering here whether um i mean one way of contrasting the two of them is to think of marx as the materialist and mill much more of an idealist and uh, and i was wondering whether though perhaps the materialism
1: has stuck with you um, yes. Whereas, yeah, yeah. Oh, it, that. The materialism has stuck. Not in a sense, I mean, most of the work that I do is on the importance of culture. Yeah. And the evolution of culture, and even, maybe we'll get to this, that we are what we are biologically yeah. because of human culture. Yeah. Yeah. That is,
0: We're we gonna get we to have that. evolved yes. in yeah. our way we have
1: yeah. because of our culture. Yeah. So I don't want to make any distinctions like material. What I used to say about Marx, when Marx said, I'm a materialist, I've turned Hegel on his head. Yeah. And I said, well, if you turn Hegel on his head, you get Hegel on his head. That's what you get. Yeah. Yeah. There's no difference between yeah. idealism and, and, and materialism. Yeah. They're both stupid. Yeah. 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 I mean, the idea that there's some, that I, the notion that ideas are not material is ridiculous. There's yeah. things in people's heads. Yeah. It's, They're just as material as, you know, your shoes and socks.
0: Yeah. And I think you're right to say that um, your analysis of the coevolution of culture and genes is very much, as it were, to blend what would be the traditional opposition between materialism and idealism. Right. Yeah. Like and,
1: the other night, I was, I, I was explaining that my understanding of why the feminist movement has been so powerful, and women have become more powerful in the, trying to, to create gender equality, is for material reasons. That is, the 20th century was the time when production in the household declined to almost zero. Mm -hmm. That is, instead of the household producing health and producing food, hospitals produced health and supermarkets produced food. So you have a whole generation of women who have nothing much to do. The kids go out to school and they stay home all day doing nothing, playing Mm -hmm. bridge. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's why the women's movement has become so powerful and in addition because technological change has made upper body strength much less important yeah. than it used to be. Yeah. So this is an idealist result, which is the emancipation of women and gender equality, which is a very idealistic sounding. Yeah. But it has a technological root, material a material so. foundation, material yeah. foundation, and even throughout the world, yeah. places where the technology advances is where you get movements for social equality, not in places that use old technologies like simple farming, etc.
0: Yeah. Let me wind this back now. We'll come back to uh, 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 the co-evolution of genes and uh, culture. I want to go back to capitalist schooling in America. And my, my understanding is, and you can correct me about this, but my understanding is that um, the, the book has enjoyed an extraordinary kind of revival. And um, it's because of the work of people like Heckman, who have discovered that education really isn't important in the traditional human capital sense. And it's much more important for the, what he would refer to as the kind of attitudinal um, predispositions that it uh, inculcates and the soft social skills. And really, although you would have probably described it differently, it, it it capitalist schooling in America was all about saying exactly the same thing, that actually it was acculturating, socializing you to a society
1: that happened to be capitalist. Yes. Yes. Oh, I and, totally agree uh, with Ekman. I you mean, do I think he's yes. wonderful. In <laughs> fact, that's exactly what we said in the book. Yes. We said we we actually underestimated the importance of cognitive skills because of certain statistics that we had at the time you should never say that cognitive skills are unimportant they are very important they're just not the only thing going on in education and for certain levels of education uh docility learning how to take orders learning how to come on time all of these things and this was i mean i i actually wrote articles about this You know, when I was just beginning to do economics, and they were published in the American Economic Review and all this stuff. So uh, I was not surprised at the result. Then then Sandy Jenks, Christopher Jenks, did a book, and I was a co-author, and we had all that stuff in the Christopher Jenks book. And then he did another book 10 years later and had all the same stuff. So let me say exactly what's going on. When you go to school, what you learn that's important for your employer is not only how to do skills things, but how to behave properly. Exactly. And if you don't behave properly, it doesn't matter what you can do, you're not going to be worthwhile to your employer. Yeah. So that's what our book said.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But that's become fashionable now. Well, it's true. It's it's nice
0: to know the (laughs) things that are true become fashionable. (laughs) Exactly. But what what, what I think is – and it's something I want to come back to again with when we're talking about – uh, economics, more generally, and Valrasian general equilibrium theory, and and uh, 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 an Don't article do. with that you wrote with Sam Bowles for the QJE uh, on on that. And I want to talk a little bit about that because it connects with some of your other work. But yeah. but what what I want to uh, focus in for a moment is, uh, I mean, how is it as it were that there's a, you might say, a thirty or forty year interval between new writing capitalist schooling in America oh, school and suddenly, yeah, summer, yes. schooling comes in America, Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 and it becoming a version of received wisdom, because I mean I think contemporary educationalists would completely buy into that version of what's going on in school is that you
1: know, socialisation. So how how is it that uh, I mean that's all uh, in, what, in physical sciences you get a very different dis- dispersion. Uh, rate uh, when Einstein did his 1905 papers in 1910 everybody mm. knew those papers mm. and when he did in 1915 general equilibrium, nobody understood it but they there was no 50 year you know no, exactly. uh, diffusion process but in the social sciences there is and, and first of all we were considered to be radicals when we made those proposals mm. in 1976. Mm. so people this is a bunch of stupid radicals. So when James, when Heckman did him later, and uh, 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 then he—he's a Nobel Prize winner, yeah. And his work was that's all he did. We did it, you know, for a month. We did this stuff. Heckman did it for 18 years, you know, so it becomes known and it becomes well known. And and, that's the fusion. It's very slow in the social sciences. But is that because uh, in the social sciences or in the
0: academy of the social sciences, um, it's it's a version of a closed shop? I mean,
1: it's not very competitive. Uh, I don't think so. I I don't buy that. All my life I've said, if I do good work, it will be accepted. And if it's not accepted, it's my fault.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, I can imagine closed shops, but economics is not a closed shop. When Danny Kahneman came out with his behavioral psychology, it was published in Econometrica, the leading journals. And the Nobel Prizes have been awarded to these out- outsiders. Um, there are certain things which don't get take a very long time to diffuse into the profession. Mm. And those of us who do those things are very upset about that. I am now not a young man anymore, and I am not looking forward to the time that some of the things that I know are correct Mm. will be accepted by the profession. It just takes time. I don't think it's closed at all. I think that's a bad mistake to say a thing like that. Um, Well, then what's the difference
0: between the social sciences and the natural sciences in that respect? I mean, I I merely look for the explanation here, and a standard economist would say if something isn't actually uh, diffusing very quickly, it's probably because there's a great deal of competition.
1: No, I I don't think it's that. The, 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 The physical sciences are almost perfectly integrated. That means if a chemist does something, they never contradict the physicist. And the physicist does something that never contradicts what um, the, the chemist and the biologist, they all are, they have a single unified theory. With them. But in the social sciences, you have this crazy situation where one discipline, like sociology, has totally different principles from another discipline, like economics. Economics, people are self interested and they're rational and blah, blah. Mm. The sociologist, everybody is uh, moral or immoral and other. Uh, their um, incentives don't matter, morality is important. So, and, and similarly, if you go through the other social sciences, the social sciences do not believe, that uh, economists do not believe that uh, theories generally need to be empirically tested. That may sound silly, but it's true. That doesn't mean they're closed, it just, but it certainly means that um, they're willing to accept a theory just because it sounds nice. You know, and there are lots of theories that sound nice that are just wrong. So I'm, I'm a big – I'm an economist, and I stand up for economics all the time. I'm not right. one of these people who says they're a bunch of jerks and they should go, you know, oh, yeah. be CEOs of Kentucky yeah. Fried Chicken or something. Yeah. No, they're doing what they do best, and they're scientists. But there's some things which we have inherited from the past um, which are very, very dangerous – such as you can do theory without evidence. Uh, I once said. Uh, uh, I once read one summer. I was reading two graduate texts. This is just ten years ago. One of them was quantum mechanics, and the other one was econ- general was economics. Yeah. And the quantum mechanics was all. It starts with oh the the. Um, uh, black-body radiation anomaly and electromagnetics uh, Planck worked on, and then einstein had got the photoelectric effect, and then the Compton effect. And meanwhile, all the theory was to explain these ex- phenomena that they found. Until 1925, Schrodinger and Heidenberg together found quantum mechanics, and it hasn't changed since then. It's yeah. the same theory yeah. since the beginning to the end. In economics, the textbook had nothing. It had no fact. Yeah. In the whole thousand pages yeah, yeah. of economics, there wasn't yes, I, a single I, yes, I will push you on this. I think you're
0: right on that. But it, it, the, the sort of maintenance of theory in that sense without evidence, I mean, how does that survive? I mean, wouldn't we say that the selection principle there must be quite weak for it to survive? If it's it's very it's weak. weak, and isn't that something to do with the absence of competition? I mean, but there's got to be something here. The selection principle must be weaker in in economics or in social sciences than in the natural sciences. I don't
1: think so. I think what it is 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 an I have an oligopoly or monopoly argument, which is what the economist basically says is so correct that they can get away with a lot of crap that isn't correct because people don't call them on it. I remember, if you go back 100 years, there were uh, there were seven different economic theories. Mm. There's now one economic theory. Every graduate school in Amer- in the world teaches the same set of economic principles. Mm. And if you don't agree with them, they call you heterodox or mm. you're you're mm. crazy. Mm. And that's because it's worked so well. This theory says use markets to distribute and co- in competition. Mm. And where their market failures have state regulation come in and solve them. That's been such a successful policy. Look, all of China developed, or India, by accepting market principles and then imposing on them regulation. So once you get this basic framework that's so successful, you let the people say almost whatever they please. You know? They're not called (laughs) to task on it because um, they're basically doing the job they're supposed to do. Now, you know when the financial crisis occurred in let's say nineteen two thousand and eight, economists were bitterly criticized for not being able to deal with that and they're still reeling from that yeah. and of course I work on that on that issue too they're called on that, but you don't call a a field because of its abstract political uh, abstract uh, theoretical formulations you, nobody cares so as long as the discipline has 10 or 12 people scattered in the best schools who say, yeah, this is okay. Everybody else says, yeah, this is okay. And you're like the, or I'm like the kid who sees that the emperor has no clothes. It's not okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just not okay. Yeah. So that's partially why uh, the, it takes so long for diffusion. But and same thing in education, you know. Yeah, we did interesting work in education that said what goes on is socialization. And still, even though you know James Heckman has done such wonderful work on this, and Christopher Jenks, etc., they still measure school quality by things like only cognitive test scores. Mm-hmm. You say, "Well, what do you do that for? Why don't you look to see whether the kids come to school or not, mm-hmm. and whether they stay in school for a longer time, and whether they go on to get good jobs?" You know, you you shouldn't judge a school by its test scores. No, exactly. I'm going to take
0: you up now, and I want to take you to that um, QJE article on um, contested exchange and what's wrong with Valrasian general equilibrium theory. And um, in in that article, you suggest there are two problems with Valrasian general equilibrium theory: the fact that it assumes that preferences are exogenous, and the other is that it assumes costless contracting. And I want to take up the costless contracting point, really, because we'll come to the exogenous preferences later on. <laughs> and, uh, but I wanted to pick up the uh, costless contracting point. And um, I, I was in graduate school in Berkeley in the mid-1970s. And I, I can't remember whether it was uh, David Gordon or Sam Bowles who came through. I'd have remembered if it was you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, it, they came through and gave a paper on uh, effectively uh, contested exchange. Right. And, uh, 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 and, and of course, you played a prominent part in the development of the idea of contested exchange. Sure. And it exactly comes out of the problem that you cannot contract for all contingencies. Correct. Now, that was something that was in the air, being developed in the 1970s, written about by Marxist left-leaning economists like yourself for the time, Sam Bowles, Tom Weisskopf, David Gordon. And actually... I would say almost like a decade later, the mainstream caught up with the problem and it suddenly realised that there was a real problem about the inability to write fully contingent contracts and the whole literature of mechanism design has been spawned on the back of what on
1: earth do you do Right. In this sort of second best, but world. also it, Stiglitz, Stiglitz's work on uh, credit markets and it, labor markets. Well, and, I, uh, I
0: think of that. All of Stiglitz's
1: uh, work is about incomplete contracts. It is, but that's but that's for a problem of sort of as it were.
0: Well, I suppose you could say the same, but but for asymmetric information. I, yeah. I, but, but but exactly. And and but what what I what I wonder about is I mean as I reflect on that. I mean I was reviewing your your work right. as. as preparing for this, and I was thinking, well, you know, it is extraordinary that, in a sense, that group of economists were talking about this thing, this problem, almost a full decade before the mainstream does.
1: Well, uh, I would say... I, I would it's, say a, it's a repeat of the same kind of I issue. I would say they have not... I think they have not understood the issue at all. Our issue was to understand incomplete contracts lead to non-clearing markets. Yeah. And it leads to power in the economy. Yeah. They have not said that. I, I put this in, in oh, my last okay. book because it yes. still hasn't been accepted by the establishment. Yes. Here's the, in case, to be, just give one example when, when someone, when an employer pays, agrees to pay a worker mm. something, money, mm. the worker gives what? A promise. How do you enforce that promise? Now, in the in the literature, you enforce it by having a contract. But you can't have a contract if your worker doesn't work hard. You can't say I'm taking them to court. You can't say I'm not paying them. Exactly. The only thing you can do is fire them. But if there's full employment, worker doesn't mind being fired. You get another job right next door. So what we used we used that theory to show why there is unemployment in a market economy all the time yeah. similarly capital if you are going to lend money to somebody they promise to pay back you can't enforce that promise now if there's collateral that mitigates the problem yeah. but if it's incomplete collateral you can't enforce it so what do you do you have a reputation effect if you go bankrupt you can't borrow for yeah. Yeah. for a number of years so this leads to an excess supply of an excess demand for for credit yeah. And therefore, there's a gap between. I mean, everybody wants more credit if they can get it. Yeah. So we use things like this to explain why there's power in the economy. Namely, the guy who has the money has the power. This not it may sound it may sound yeah. obvious, yeah. but it's not obvious yeah. because, for instance, Samuelson. When we when we started working on this stuff, Paul Samuelson was so wonderful. He really engaged us, Sam Bowles yeah. and I. We were at Harvard. He was at MIT. He engaged us. And we were talking about the power of the boss over the worker. And Paul wrote, what kind of power? So let the workers hire the bosses. And that was what led us to, for the first time to think, yes, why does not? Why does it happen? Why is it not the other way around? But what he didn't realize, or he never realized as far as I know, is that this is a serious critique of traditional economics. Because everywhere in the world, bosses hire workers. Nowhere in the world do uh, workers hire bosses you know, one or two yeah. places. Yeah. So, um, we took this very seriously as a critique of the general equilibrium model, uh, especially when it concerns things like capital and labor and yeah. even consumer goods. Yeah. We We said consumers have power yeah. over producers. Why? Because the consumers have the money. Yeah. The producers give a promise.
0: Yeah.
1: And therefore product uh, consumer goods markets never clear there's people p- producers always want to sell more stuff which means that they have they get a profit from everything they sell which means that the market doesn't clear mm-hmm. The cost is below the, yeah. uh, the price. In truth, though, they're, they're the sort of mainstream versions
0: of this same point... Uh, I don't know. Well, no. <laughs> well but they, they will acknowledge that the market doesn't clear in the in the Valrasian sense. You have an equilibrium level of unemployment. I think what they always have had difficulty with is acknowledging, as it were, there's something that we should be talking about in social science called power.
1: Yes, of course they have. But we, by the way, long before there was a Me Too movement, yeah. Sam and I were writing that you could... If you want to understand what it means to be exploited as a worker, say, sexually harassed, you have to recognize that the labor market doesn't clear and that the employer has power over the worker because he can fire them. And you don't take out all of your perks as being an employer or or a supervisor by your your pay. You take some of it out if you like to harass women. And so this is power in the economy, it's not outside the economy, no. and it, it's reasonable to treat those, uh, you can't treat it as a contract. Well, you come to work for us, and we sexually harass you. If you don't like it, go work somewhere else. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, these are very important issues. Uh, yes. But I don't think it has been uh, accepted by it. That's one theory that Sam and I developed, which I think has not been... You just don't understand. This is a totally political economy-type notion that the capitalist economy has serious power internal to the economy itself, even when it's operating totally competitively. Mm. Right? There are no, no uh, laws against uh, making, um, giving monopoly power to anybody. The economy itself produces power relations but
0: that's that's a derivative of the complete inability to write a fully contingent contract, yes, yes, and not so, just yeah. to write
1: it but to enforce it, it to enforce and, it exactly yes. yes yeah 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 exactly yes. yeah, yeah, yeah so even though this this general equilibrium model, which I love and I've worked on it you know a lot, I think it's extremely important um when you get down to details, it's obviously wrong, yeah. and you have to yeah. it's it's like it reminds yeah. me of but, modern cosmology where you have this incredibly simple model of the whole universe, like with four variables. Yes. And yeah, that's wonderful. But of course, it doesn't explain uh, galaxies or anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, I want to ask you the same version of the question about sort of understanding what goes on in the academy here, about how it was that the profession, for a very long while, got captivated by Valrasian general equilibrium theory. But before I do that, I want to come back to that macro point I warned you I was going to come back to. And that is, when I read the QJE article again, I thought it what what really struck me, apart from the fact of prescience of, of, of that earlier work and and uh, on the contested exchange and the inability to write fully continued contracts, but what struck me was that... Uh, You essentially identify the problem of not being able to write a fully contingent contract so as to enforce it, because you can't, in a sense, observe the worker every minute of the day without wasting all your time. It's just not possible. And more important, uh, you can't take them to court. You can't (laughs) take them to court. Exactly. (laughs) If you find these, right? Yeah. It's uh, it's, uh, and 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 so, uh, but one of the. One of the reasons why you also can't write fully contingent contracts is not just that, as it were, power relation that is going yeah. to exist, but it's also because there isn't in practice a full set of futures markets yeah. so that there is uncertainty. Sure. And in, in the work of Keynes, that fact was very important in making money very, very different to the way that it's cast in general equilibrium theory, which,
1: which it isn't, money doesn't exist in general. It, it, well, equilibrium. it always <laughs> a <veil.
0: laughs> It's it's, it's exact, exactly. And so, why? Well, indeed, one of the, the the sort of funny detours in general equilibrium theory is how do you consistently integrate money into it? And, so, and so. but but it, but but for, for for Keynes, it's absolutely crucial that, that there is uncertainty because i are not fully conditioned well, it's a full set of futures markets. And that places money in a very, very important and different position to as ever imagined in valuation, general equilibrium theory. And, and you might say that indeed it's the special position of money and finance that got lost in the run-up to the financial crisis, but there was always there in a certain tradition sure. of post-Keynesian economics uh, coming out of, of that isolation of money and finance as being quite critical to the insights that Keynes was giving. But what, the question I wanted to ask you here about this is, is since it's the same point, we can't write fully contingent contracts, how is it you were never that interested in the Keynesian point about uncertainty? Um, or perhaps I'm wrong, and you are.
1: I am. But I, I, would, I, I argue, and I've worked on the notion of understanding general equilibrium or the general market exchange uh, dynamics as a complex dynamic nonlinear system.
0: yeah.
1: And the work that I've done, first I did it by simulating the uh, market economy on the computer, and I found these complex dynamics. And in fact, if I set up uh, an economy on the computer I don't even know what the equilibrium looks like. I can't solve Mm -hmm. for it because it's a matrix of size 1,000 by Mm 1,000. What, are you going to find the eigenvalues? Mm -hmm. No way. Mm -hmm. So I realized immediately that nobody, the problem with, with rational expectations macroeconomics was that nobody knows what the, it's not that it's just incomplete contracts. It's a complex dynamical system. Nobody knows what the solution is. Nobody even knows what the right equations are. So you can't use rational expectations mm-hmm. because it doesn't for most things because it does, you can't calculate it. But complexity is one thing, and I take
0: that point entirely. But the point I'm trying to press at is is the one about the fact that we don't know what the future is going to be like, and that that in a sense th- th- and that's, that's like, why
1: there's complexity. That's that's the same thing. Is it? Well, I have an economy. I haven't. Ch- I don't change any of the technology. I don't change this in the number of agents that are engaged in uh, inter- exchange. And I still get an, uh, a dynamic process from past to present to future, and I can't solve for it. And the same reason that I can't, when I play chess with someone, I don't know the optimal move because it's too complicated. Nobody knows the optimal move. That's the problem with rational expectations. And, and my argument, which I did right from the beginning, is you have to use what are called adaptive expectations, which means you, you have a certain strategy in your life, in your economic dealings as, as firms and consumers and who have you. And when you see someone doing better than you, you might change to what he's doing, change to his strategy. And that's called adaptive expectations. But in evolutionary game theory, it's what leads to a, what's called a monotonic dynamic and therefore a, an evolutionary equilibrium. Yeah. So I argue that that's what people do. They do adaptive expectations. And, and, and then when, when, when Antoine Mondel and I proved the stability of general equilibrium, we proved that using adaptive expectations and showing that you get an evolutionarily stable solution yeah. I, I, I want to come back though, push you a bit more on this point because I, I think there is a difference between
0: the problem of calculation when you have complexity yeah and the fact that actually there's a real sense in which we don't know the future and yeah. and 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 let me give you a, a sort of an example about this I always like the quote it's 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 uh, and it was a quote uh, wasn't but I've often liked to use it and and uh, to illustrate both the difficulties and the idea behind rational expectations. It's Humphrey Littleton says, if I knew where jazz was going, I'd be there. Yeah. And and I'd, I'd, and and and, yeah. and and the point is I don't think not knowing where jazz is going to be is a point about the complexity No, of it is not. The, the, and it, that's well, what I want to get at. Yes. That. Well,
1: I, I you know, I I would argue that that is what we call nonergodic
0: Yes, exactly. It's, non is it's exactly ergotic. the money that Paul Davidson would have. Right. Phrased in other
1: it words, ergodic means that you can predict the future from the past. I mean, it's much yes. 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 more yes. complicated. Yes. But basically, yes. exactly. Yes. You, yes. you can. You can predict the history will give you the equilibrium, yes. Mark, yes. Or the yes. average value. Yes. But when you have financial innovation and technical innovation, and you have different countries developing in different ways with different political systems. It's not ergodic. The past isn't like the future. And this is why it's so hard to regulate financial markets because they're extremely non-ergodic. They're always inventing new securities and they're involved with communication and transportation and all of that stuff. So you can't judge. The the past does not tell you what the future is going to be. And you can't do a rational expectations, uh, extrapolation or solution or anything like that. And when that happens, you have to use adaptive expectations. Or at least that's what I'm arguing. I can't imagine what else you would use. Um, well, I suppose no.
0: That that you know, you're, I, no. I absolutely agree about that. I mean, you certainly wouldn't want to use rational expectations. It's bound, Well, it standpoint. doesn't mean anything. No, no. It, it, no I I agree entirely. <laughs> Thank <Take it.
1: laughs> you.
0: No. You want to turn it off? No. Sorry. Um, it it, it I, I absolutely agree about that, but. I suppose the, there's the sort of a theoretical space that Keynes opened up. Not that many people have wandered down it, but it was to, to as it were, license the, the famous phrase "animal spirits," and you know the idea of waves of optimism and pessimism. And uh, yeah.
1: but that's, that's, that also that, fits into um, it fits into the adaptive expectations if you recognize that what when people are optimistic it's because the optimistic people are doing well and other people are becoming optimistic because they want to do well like the people who are doing well now and when things turn down then it's the pessimistic people who are doing well because they're getting out and um uh, people follow the successful yeah so i don't think these are just idealistic movements you know like a something of the phases of the moon or something, or the constellation of the stars. It's because people are following what's being successful at the time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Let's move on to uh, the co-evolution of genes and culture.
1: <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> now, uh, in this view, our cultural values owe much to their evolutionary selection advantage that they give to groups, and what's interesting about the coevolution part of this and I want to come back to this in a moment, but I want to, before I come to it, ask you a slightly different question um, what's particularly interesting about the coevolution of genes and culture, in my view and correct me if I'm wrong here -- is that once we have the coevolution taking place, culture itself, as it were, can contribute to the evaluation of fitness. Yes. And so, absolutely crucial point that no longer does fitness lie as it were outside, Mm. and and so we not just have the selection of cultures that are, uh, uh, from an evolutionary point of view, giving advantage to the group that holds them, Mm. but also they turn out in a possibly self-fulfilling manner to be able to actually define what fitness is for this purpose Mm. of evolutionary selection.
1: Can I give an example? Do, yeah. Human speech. Now, people, when they write about this, there's a strong tendency to think that it's a cognitive thing. You get a big brain, and then you can speak. That's not right. What's right is that speaking requires huge anatomical changes in the throat, in the larynx, in the tongue, in the nerves to the the cheeks. And animals can't speak. For instance, chimpanzees, they can sign with cards you can give them little cards and then you know, have different words on them and and uh they can do that mm-hmm. but they can only make six sounds they can go <laughs> and that's because they simply don't have the the larynx and they don't have the tongue and they don't have the nerves to make the sounds that humans can make now why do we have them we have them because in an early stage in speech Humans spoke to each other, and those who had more nerves and a betterly located larynx had more children. Yeah. Who had the same thing? Why did they have more children? Because evidently it was good for the group to reward these people with, uh, or or the or perhaps the females simply liked the males that that had better communication ability. So after twenty thousand years, the people who had the ability to make very complex sounds had one out. They became the humans. But why do they have all of these uh, physiological possibilities that are built into their genes? Because the culture of speech. right? Yeah. So it, it, the the speech creates the physiology for speech, which yeah. creates the ability of more speech and better speech, yeah. etc. Yeah. So that's what gene culture coevolution is. And more generally, human beings tend to be Uh, docile in the same way that that, like we train our dogs and cats, which cats are hard to train. (laughs) And and, and we train them and we accept the ones that that live in human society. Similarly, if people are constantly um, uh, violating the laws of society, they're going to get killed (laughs) basically. So there's a certain docility that humans have. um, Their ability to cooperate with each other which is a product of their culture it's not just that they it's in their genes yeah. for instance we get in an airplane and people are nice to each other to an extreme everybody's pleasant if you put chimpanzees in an airplane they kill each other There's all that <laughs> space to take each other's food yeah, yeah, you know etc yeah, yeah, yeah. so our docility our ability to to live in human society is a product of the culture itself because it's changed our genes it's got rid of a lot, not all by any means of course, right now they're throwing pipe bombs around in america yeah. where <laughs> yeah. so there's plenty plenty of of, of antisocial behavior yeah. Yeah. left yeah yeah but um it's still a strong movement towards sociality yeah i I want to
0: focus specifically here on on um in, in this view that our cultural values owe much to their uh, evolutionary selection advantage that they give. And if you think about our contemporary cultural values today in, in the US and the UK, you might say that um, two very important cultural values are a belief in liberal freedoms and a belief in democracy. And so I wonder if you could sketch in your mind how each of those cultural values gave this evolutionary selection advantage.
1: Well, first of all, I, I think in in the modern world, which means since sedentary agriculture, mm. um, our cultural evolution has not been towards maximizing our fitness as biological individuals. And the most important part mm. of this is the so-called demographic transition. Mm which is something that only, the only species that we know of that has this, which is when human beings become sufficiently wealthy, instead of having more children, they try to have more uh, high quality, fewer high quality children. So when GMP per capita reaches a certain level, people start having fewer children. And once that happens, they're not maximizing their fitness as a biological agents. So anybody who tells me people should maximize their fitness, that's ridiculous. If if human beings tried to maximize their fitness in modern society, there would be war all over the place because you're fighting only to help your kin versus everybody else's kin. But that's not the way modern society works. And people now, they want to live good lives, not just have lots Mm -hmm. of kids. And that we're the only species that has ever exhibited that as far as we know in the history of this planet. Sometimes people ask me, do you believe in God? And I say, well, there must be a God because why is there this one species that's avoided the Malthusian uh, population <laughs> dynamic <laughs> in which if people are better off, they have more kids and then they, they're poor again. Okay. So I don't buy that, uh, that we're, we're dominated by uh, fitness at all. Mm-hmm. I think we're dominated by, our culture is dominated by uh, a number of uh, tribalism for some, liberal principles for others, and all of these are, are fighting works. their way out. And they have nothing to do with uh, our fitness. In fact, we're destroying our fitness by, uh, with climate change that we're not controlling. So no way that we're being optimal about that.
0: Well, but so for example, I mean the, the reason I, I slightly pursue this this line is that it seems to me that Hayek has a very sort of similar evolutionary view of cultural values and similar to 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 yours okay. and and uh, I think you know you can have a a, a sort of interesting if you could <laughs> a discussion right. with Hayek over quite whether he sees the way in which cultural values then influence the criteria of fitness but in the sense of the idea of, of uh, cultural values being selected because they, they offer an evolutionary advantage to the group yeah. I think uh, you know that's plainly there in in, in uh, Hayek and I think what's what's interesting for me is you know when you think about the principle of cultural value of liberalism you know yeah. individual freedoms he has a very clear view about what that delivers and it, it and in a way it's, it's to suggest that there is a theme to our discussion at least <laughs> <laughs> that i'm trying to, to to push here and that is for, because for hayek it's the knowledge problem and the great virtue of 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 liberal freedoms is that they are an appropriate response to the problem of knowledge and the problem of knowledge for for hayek is of course famously when he's engaging in the central planning debate it's a problem about the way in which knowledge is dis- distributed and there's no possibility of a central planner being able to have it but equally, it's a problem about not knowing the future in later Hayek, exactly the same kind of, of Keynes' problem. Uh-huh. And so I wonder, would
1: you, would you buy into that or: Well, I, look, I certainly believe that culture can evolve by benefiting societies so that they become stronger than mm-hmm. other societies, yes. and they replace other societies yeah. that have cultures that are not as conducive to yes. social living yeah, yeah. Yes. And liberal societies do have this possibility. And authoritarian societies tend to borrow the technologies and the information and the organization that the liberal um, societies create. And if there were no liberal societies, I don't think there's any question, but these authoritarian societies would become completely stagnant. Completely stagnant. But that's not the way it is now. So in, in that sense... I would agree with you, but I don't think anybody supports liberal democracy because they think that it's going to make their country stronger or that they can defeat uh, some other authoritarians because they have uh, more technology or something. People support liberal democracy because it's good, because freedom is good, because tolerance is good, because a free exchange of ideas is good. These are just moral values. Now, where do they come from? Well, I mean, I've done a lot of anthropological work in addition to other things, and my argument would be something like this. If you go back to the hunter-gatherer societies, where humans were until the last 10,000 years or so, these societies were extremely egalitarian, Mm. and they were even not sexist, probably, because if you look at hunter-gatherers today, they tend to be not sexist. They have a division of labor, but uh, they're not patriarchal in some sense. So we, But our predecessors, the primates, are extremely hierarchical, um, and w- we evolved it to a democratic, horizontally egalitarian um, mode of life without giving up the ability to be hierarchical and to obey hierarchy and to seek hierarchical position. Even in hunter-gatherer societies, a lot of young men try to run things uh, and uh, uh, Christopher Bohm has called uh, the response to this reverse hierarchy. Mm-hmm. What they do to the young men is they discipline them, and if necessary they expel them or they kill them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's f- enforced egalitarianism. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as you get s- settled agriculture and private property or property, then you can have, a, you have a resurgence of hierarchy. You get tribalism. And eventually you get states, very hierarchical organizations. So humans are capable of both. They're capable of being extremely hierarchical, and they're capable of being very democratic. Yeah. And I don't I, I cannot say that one will win out over the other. I can only say this. From my perspective, the reason or what from my research, what I have found is the reason democracy has spread where it has. Is because of war, because of the foot soldier. Before foot soldiers, democracy was nothing, because you have cavalry, yeah. uh, and there's rich people yeah. have horses, and yeah, they it have, works with hierarchy very well. With, works it with hierarchy. Soon as the, in the Second World War, when the foot soldiers destroyed the cavalry, mm. uh, foot soldiers became the, the necessary ingredient in being powerful as a nation, and many nations. Um, move towards democracy because they had to recruit their own foot soldiers. Yes, I, I
0: just—I'm very interested for a moment just to press on that because that, it's another nice example of. Of, and I'm wondering exactly how you play it out. A nice example of the way in which we understand the emergence of democratic values because they offer some advantage to those societies in in warfare. Uh, uh, at a particular time, deb- is, the,
1: the, it, I want to say. The, the democratic values have been there. Peasants have wanted democratic, they fought for freedom. But why do they well, flourish? They flourish only when they, they're they useful yeah. to the elites.
0: But useful to those societies. Well, but useful
1: to the elites that want to fight yes, in those yes, societies it, yes. and need to recruit the peasants yes, and yes, workers to come yes. fight. Yes. Right? The reason ISIS was so powerful is that the work, the the foot soldiers in ISIS believed that they were right and they were fighting for things they believed in. They're there. They're except for the Kurds. Maybe the people they're fighting against had no stake in their societies in Iraq. You know, the the, the foot soldiers made a living, but they were going to die for this regime that had no, gave them nothing. Um, Certainly not democracy. So yes, the foot soldier is key to to this because the elites need them. As soon as the elites do not need them anymore, democracy is going to be in serious trouble. And when is that going to happen? When the robots take the place of the foot soldiers. And when is that going to happen? When the robots have better batteries. Humans have incredible batteries, called ATP. Mm -hmm. It creates, you feed people porridge in the morning and they kill all day long robots is why who've been important. <laughs> yes you get robots got 2 hours mm-hmm. you know and if it's a big robot it's got 30 you, if they could get good batteries for these robots the democracy is in real trouble because the elites have no more reason to care about what happens to the subjects so so in
0: in your in your view there though and this is the tension i want to get at is is that if as it were the ideas of democracy have flourished for these reasons, mm-hmm. historically, evolutionarily, and nevertheless we actually buy into democracy for an entirely different set of reasons which may have something to do with the egalitarian foundations and so on and so forth. What happens then, how do we understand how that tension gets played out as robots get better batteries?
1: Uh, democracy loses. It, it loses. It loses. I mean, I'll, I'm not going to be around to see it, luckily. <laughs> I don't see you, you, any... you don't think that, as it were,
0: it's not possible for the values of democracy to, to animate a different sense of fitness that means that actually having um, uh, uh, robots in charge of this now isn't going to be uh, uh, such a, a good idea or something like that?
1: I just can't imagine it. You know, I'm sure it's, perhaps somebody can. I would like to say, well, we just have to fight for democracy. Yeah. And we have to control our states. The biggest problem in modern society is controlling predatory states. Yeah. Okay? In the third world, where there is severe underdevelopment and poverty, it's because there are predatory states. In countries where they've somehow or other... Uh, uh, have, have pacified and their, their states and they control their states like in democracies or in China China has a dictatorship but it's a, it's a kind of benevolent dictatorship in the sense that they are very or, oriented towards improving the lives of the people and you know it's like an enlightened despotism but you have to be able to control your states um, there are places it may be impossible to control your states and, and if that's true, then democracy can reign, Yeah. right? Like, even if there are robots, yeah. it could be yeah. that if there are enough people around and they're angry enough, and they're fighting enough for freedom and etc., they can destroy the robots, etc. So this this is all sounds like science fiction, yeah. but and it is science fiction. But uh, it's a real problem. But
0: in, yeah, yeah. Our time is just about up. Uh, okay, but there there is one question that. I didn't ask you about at the time, and that is, how did so many, or a generation of the best minds in economics
1: spend their time on valuation, general equilibrium
0: theory in one way or another?
1: How, well, you don't like that, evidently, you don't like general equilibrium theory. I do. I, I love it. And I've spent a lot of time working on it. And I was very upset that there was no um, stability theory. And I worked hard to develop stability theory. It is one of these curiosities: is we proved, Anton Mandel and I proved what the greatest minds in economics in the 1950s and 60s couldn't prove. We proved it in 2015, but nobody seems to recognize that. Now we didn't prove it because we're so smart. We proved it because of improvements in economic theory. Especially evolutionary game theory, we had the tools that were not available for people in 1950 and 60 to do that. But now people don't do general equilibrium mm-hmm. theory
0: anymore. Um, but it's well, they th- didn't do Falrasian general equilibrium theory. And it's really. V- I mean, I don't mind general equilibrium theory of different kinds, but I but, but it's Falrasian general equilibrium. I don't theory? think there
1: is any other kind. What's ah. what's another? If if you mean what macroeconomists do. Like you know, a representative agent model. Well, that would be them. one version. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think most modern macroeconomics is just smoke and mirrors. I, I it's agree. It's completely it. un, unjustified. Yeah. Uh, the only reason that it, the reason that it's, it's but, so uh, widespread is that well, central bankers need something to do. They need some <laughs> theory from the theorists, so they take this dumb theory and they run with it, but they change it a lot. I mean, what central bankers do today is mostly. Uh, heuristic they do what they think works and um, very they, pragmatic very yeah. pragmatic yeah yeah but mm-hmm. the, the the macro itself I'm, I'm going to be talking about that in Oxford tomorrow mm-hmm. um, the, what they call general equilibrium theory is not at all general equilibrium theory it's toy theory it's you, t- you have one consumer and you have one firm and you have one good mm-hmm. and the only thing where you get heterogeneity is you get uh, expectations and the expectations can be heterogeneous. Mm. And then you can see how they develop over time. But the theory itself is really quite useless.
0: No, I, I agree
1: entirely. Yeah.
0: Well, huh, it's been a pleasure
1: talking with you. Thank you
0: so Stand much here. for sitting down with us. To all our listeners, you can find more podcasts, blogs, and live events on the cutting edge debates in governance by following us on Facebook. And Twitter at CSGSKCL. <laughs> and we look forward to seeing you again soon on the Governance Podcast.